you're in what I call that, that loop of money shame. So you make a mistake, you feel bad about it, and because you feel ashamed, it makes you wanna hide, and you don't reach out and get the help that you need. Failing. 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 I know. When we talk about failure. Some battles you feel like you lost. And survival. Some battles you feel like you win. It's tough. I had to make some tough decisions. We've all faced failure, but what steps do we take to launch ourselves into success? I'm Sarah Brown. There is life, a achieve your dream, and then what we do with it. And this is Failing Forward. Well, I am thrilled to introduce Christine Lucan, who she describes as a financial lifeguard, but she's also an author and written a wonderful book called Money is Emotional. She was referred to me by a friend. Although, Christine, I think that the universe gives me people at times in my life, and I know this happens with our listeners. Like when, when somebody's supposed to come into our lives, it's all, it's never a coincidence, right? Absolutely. Oh my God, you're going to help me cure my <laughs> emotional garbage around money. <laughs> yes, that is what it's all about. That's what it's all about. So I know that you have a great story around this topic, hence it wouldn't become yes. your vocation and your passion. So why don't you share a little bit about yourself and your background? Yeah, so... I always like to tell people I didn't get into helping people with their money because I've always done it perfectly. In fact, it is quite the opposite. Um, 20 years ago, when I was 26 years old, I crashed and burned financially pretty hard, despite having an accounting degree. And, you know, there was a lot of shame and embarrassment around me getting into that mess because I was someone who should have known better. Mm. And I was always great at math. You know, I was on the honor roll. I was always, you know, a mostly straight A student. You know, I was one of those people that got really disappointed when I got a B. <laughs> and so, you know, people are like, well, you know, how did you get yourself into this situation? Well, a good part of the reason was I was in a dysfunctional relationship. I was engaged to a guy who had horrible money habits. He was in and out of jobs, in and out of jail. I thought if I just loved him enough that mm. he would change. And he did. He got worse. So by the time I was ready to grow up and be an adult, um, you know, he was still kind of hanging out in those teenage slash college partying um, years. And the sad part was when I was ready to break off the engagement, I literally had no money to leave. Wow. I had, I had um, three payday lenders that I owed money to. I was behind on my car payment and parking it about a half a mile away from where I lived so they wouldn't tow it. Mm -hmm. My credit score was, I don't know if it's possible for it to be negative, but <laughs> if it is possible, it was. Because <laughs> it was that bad. bad. It was that bad. So um, I'm going to ask you something that you just said, because I think a lot of people probably have felt this way before. You said uh, you should have known because you knew better. Yes. You said you should have known better. What's the difference between should have and actually do or, or make a, a full choice around? Right. Yeah. Well, and certainly there's people who get into financial messes because 
they never studied financial literacy, like their parents never taught them. Um, and, you know, that just wasn't something that, that was talked about when they grew up, but it was something that my parents talked about. And I think what the disconnect is, is that people don't really understand what drives our behavior. Yeah. And it's not, it's not what's in our head. And it's so interesting. Well, it actually is what's in our head, but it's in our subconscious mind. Yeah, yes. you taught me that it is within our head. Okay. Yes, but it's in our subconscious mind. And, um, you know, there are all these emotional factors that, that drive our behavior. So I find what typically happens is, you know, the financial experts will say, if you don't like the results that you're getting, you need to change your actions. And I'm going to give you this list of actions for you to take. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, people start going through the process of taking those various actions. And, you know, some, some people have really good success with that, but other people, you know, they do it for a period of time and then something happens. Something happens that pulls them back into their past patterns, you know, their way of relating with money. And then they say to themselves, what's wrong with me? Mm -hmm. What is wrong with me that I can't make myself do this? And that's the wrong question to ask. The right question to ask is what happened to me or what is happening to me that is causing me to interact with my money in this way. Yep. And so we've got these, it, it's, it's true, if you wanna change your results, you do have to change your actions. But what most financial experts don't talk about is what causes us to take action. And we usually take action because of two different things, to move towards pleasure yeah. or to move away from pain. And so, there are all these things that are under the surface. Most of them we're not even aware of. That's, you know, all stored down in our subconscious mind, which is a very good tape recorder. It records things, you know, that you don't remember in your conscious mind. It's like your subconscious mind never forgets these things that happen to you. So, you know, this can be the things you think about money, the things you say about money, the things you heard your parents say yeah. or other authority figures in your life say about money. It could also be past traumatic events in your childhood. And when I say traumatic events, I mean traumatic from a child's perspective. Sure. So for an example, I, um, I had a client I was working with and when she was five or six years old, her older brother stole $10 from her piggy bank. And, you know, as an adult, you might say, well, that's just $10, right? right? But to a five-year-old, that's like a million dollars. Yeah, It is a big deal. And, you know, that was from someone who she loved and she trusted and that person broke her trust. And so it wasn't until we uncovered that memory that we realized why she wasn't saving money. Yeah. Because deep down in her subconscious, it wasn't safe to save money. So as soon as she would get money, she would spend it. So I took this online course a couple years ago around this and they had me journal out 
and try to think back to stories growing up. And this wasn't mm-hmm. super traumatic, but this was a this was a pattern that I'd see. So my dad was extremely frugal, really, really frugal. He probably had like the more fear mentality around money. My mom had abundance mentality around money. So I remember my mom um, took a shopping one time and said, go ahead and get it. Like, let's buy these clothes or whatever. But there was always this fear of when we came home, my dad would think we spent too much. That seemed to be the habit over and over and over again. Now, I don't know the dynamics between my parents other than that I know that my dad was super frugal, right? And it wasn't, it wasn't like a huge fight, but it was a disappointment that my dad had. And so mm. I started noticing that I would buy things and I wouldn't want to tell my husband about it because I didn't want to have that disappointment or that shame around. Now, mm. I didn't necess- he wasn't necessarily disappointed or shaming me. But it was a belief that a, a historical belief that I had. Yeah. And it's so intricate. Right. Because you should be able to enjoy your spending, right? If you have a healthy relationship with money. And I don't. You should have that, that balance of like, I enjoy saving. I enjoy investing. And I also enjoy spending money. And I enjoy giving money to charitable causes and people who need my help. You know, okay. there should be, there should be joy along that whole continuum. So, so how do you help people create joy around that continuum? Yeah. So it really is a matter of how did you uncovering. create joy around that? <laughs> yeah. So this was, you know, obviously not having a grown man child dependent upon me, AKA my ex-fiance, right. my finances improved, um, <laughs> you know, because I wasn't supporting anyone other than, than myself. And, you know, fortunately my dad said, Hey, look, you know, I'm not going to pay your bills. I'm not going to lend you money, but you can, you can come and stay with me for a couple months, you know, rent free. I'll help you create a plan, you know, to get back, out on on your feet and um, because I was so overwhelmed and so ashamed of my money mess I didn't know what to do first like even though in my head you know I was working as an accountant I knew how to do a budget when I looked at my finances it was the equivalent of walking into your house after a tornado has struck and blown the back of the house off. Mm. It's like you walk in that front door and everything is a disaster yeah. and you just want to like slam the door and walk away because it's just too much. I loved the analogy that you gave that I think it was something around like paint when you had to pay bills, you would be a nervous wreck around that. Yeah. Well, I was emotionally attached to those bills because there was a story behind each of them. And, you know, when I looked <laughs> The what I always tell is when I looked at the Dillard's bill yeah. that my ex had actually charged my Valentine's Day present on, mm-hmm. and now I was going to have to pay for it, to say that I got a little emotional is probably an understatement. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, but there was, there was such a great value in having my dad sit down with me and say, okay, here's what we're dealing with. Yeah. You know, he wasn't emotionally attached to my bills to him. It was just like, okay, it's one in the stack and it's like, 
your balance is 900, your payment is 50, here's your Citibank, and just, you know, creating that whole list of like, okay, this is what we're dealing with. And most importantly, here's the one or two things I want you to do. And then we'll meet again next week, or we'll meet again in two weeks. So it was like simple steps, like bite-sized steps to get you there. Absolutely. And my my dad, even though he could have totally said, I told you so, <laughs> I think yeah. he was just so relieved that I had finally, you know, turned the corner and got out of that toxic relationship. Um, and, and that's one thing I tell people, especially parents, you know, if your kid screws up with their finances and they come to you and ask for help, don't say I told you so, because that's going to shut them off immediately. And I'm so glad that my dad didn't do that. Yeah. You know, he was very, you know, accepting. He wasn't judgmental. You know, he just said, hey, you did a bad thing, but you're not a bad person. Yeah. And, and that's the thing that um, I try to explain to people, you know, that whole question of what's wrong with me, like what's wrong with me that I can't figure this money stuff out. I mean, I have clients who are doctors, who are attorneys, federal prosecutors, authors, real estate investors. These are smart people. Right. And, you know, when they say like, well, what's wrong with me that I can't figure this out? Well, there's this whole host of emotional factors that are under the surface that we've never even explored. And the way I like to explain it, and this is an analogy I borrowed from Harv Ecker's book, uh, Secrets of the Millionaire Mind, is all of that stuff that's under the surface is like your money blueprint. Okay. And so anytime you interact with money, it's all coming out of these files that are in your subconscious mind. And one of the things I teach people is, um, and it's just, it's crazy to me how little we learn about our own brains in school. Like I never learned any of this stuff. Right, right. 95% of our daily actions are governed by our unconscious mind. Yeah, I saw that in the book. Yes. <laughs> You're right. And it's so crazy. Now, I mean, part of it's a good thing because, you know, you have your brain power to, you know, work on your business and solve problems and all this good stuff. And you're not wasting it on trying to remember how to tie your shoe or how to drive a car. Right. But the problem is when you have these programs in your subconscious mind about how to interact with money and they're not good, then, you know, it's like your unconscious mind is just taking over and the next thing you know, you find yourself repeating these same patterns. And then you're in what I call that, that loop of money shame. Mm -hmm. So you make a mistake, you feel bad about it. And because you feel ashamed, it makes you want to hide and you don't reach out and get the help that you need. Right. And then when you don't reach out and get the help that you need, then you're, you're going to make another mistake. Right. And that, that cycle keeps perpetuating. So you know, it, it's okay to feel remorse or even a little guilt over your mistakes. Yeah. But the problem is, you know, those are things that alert you that you've done something wrong. Um, I've heard it said that there is no productive use for shame. Right. Right. That there's a productive use of guilt because that says like, oh my gosh, I, I did, did something, something wrong. I did something wrong. I did something irresponsible or maybe like I did something irresponsible with somebody else's stuff or somebody else's money. But shame says, shame takes it from I've done a bad thing to I, I am yeah. a bad person. 
and that's that's when that that problem happens and so of course i feel like with a lot of my clients i have to tell them like look you are not a bad person you just you know you, you screwed up we all screw up we're human right um but we have that choice of saying am i going to reach out and get some help am i going to go get a book am i going to take a course or am i going to continue to hide from the problem or pretend it doesn't exist and then the cycle continues so um you know harbecker explains that as your blueprint your money blueprint all that stuff that's going on under the surface and so you know if i were to hand you a blueprint to build a ranch house it doesn't matter how hard you work or how fast you work or who you hire you're only going to get a ranch house with that blueprint got it and the only way that you're going to get a two-story is if you go back and you fix the blueprint and you change the blueprint so the problem is there's all these people out there who really want the equivalent of a financial two-story house yeah but they are operating from a ranch blueprint and they feel frustrated because they're like I've read the books, I've tried the stuff, I've done all the programs and it's not working. And so therefore they think the problem's with me, right? Like there's something wrong with me yeah. because I've done all the stuff that I know how to do and it's not working. Um, and it's so interesting because, you know, as I coach people and we start to uncover some of those things and rewrite some of those negative money beliefs that are simmering below the surface. Once we start to fix those, the external actions become so much easier. So like, how do you rewrite those? So first of all, we have to uncover them, right? Yeah. We have to figure out like what is even under there. And so, you know, part of that is, you know, a discovery process. And I tell people, one of the best ways to do it is, you know, to start a note on your phone or, you know, have a piece of paper handy and write down all the negative things you catch yourself thinking or saying about money. Yeah, I, I loved that. Like, it's too expensive. I'll never pay off those student loans. Everyone's getting promoted except me. I'll always have a mortgage. Those are some of them, right? Yes. And, you know, for everybody, it's different you know it's there there are some common threads like you know you can hear maybe your dad's voice in the back of your head saying money doesn't grow on trees yeah. or what do you think i am made of money um you know those kinds of things or you know rich people are evil and greedy and you know part of it is really just capturing that and saying you know what is even going on down there <laughs> because we can't overwrite those files until we discover what they are. Um, and the interesting thing about the way that your unconscious mind works is that you can't delete files. Okay. You can only, you can only overwrite them. All right. So if you, if you say, oh, I don't want to have this belief that money is evil anymore, or I don't want to have this belief that I'll always be in debt anymore, you can't just delete it you have to replace it with a positive. Love that. I'm, I'm writing this down. Okay. <laughs> and take, so I actually, notes. yeah, <laughs> good. Yeah. And so I actually have a very specific formula of how I help people to take those negative statements and rewrite them. So 
that, you know, through the process of repetition, yeah. you know, of, you know, saying these new things over and over again until you start believing them, then it begins to replace that file. So a big one and one that you wrote about the book and you mentioned this, um, but I, I thought it was really interesting. I'm, I'm not a big Bible person, but uh, it's a lot of people have heard money is the root of all evil. And you actually corrected that quote, which I found was super interesting that the actual wording is the love of money is the root of all evil. And yes. then you also corrected, blessed are the poor. Yes. And it's really, blessed are the poor in spirit, which means what? Blessed are the humble. Yep. <laughs> that, to me, was like eye-opening. Yeah. And, and how simple that reframe is, right? Yeah, absolutely. I say, you know, if God's our father, he doesn't want us living in poverty. I mean, of all the parents out there, if, if you have kids, or even if you have nieces and nephews or children that you care about. Yeah. You don't want them to be poor. You don't want them to have hole in, holes in their shoes. You don't want them to be begging. Like, that literally makes no sense. Right. <laughs> so what have you been finding? Have you seen any change in trends since COVID has hit and people's relationship with money? Well, I think it's bringing things to a head for a lot of people. Okay. Um, it's very interesting because... I've had a lot of people say like, oh, how's business going? Are you doing okay? And I'm like, I am so busy. <laughs> I mean, I have just had people coming out of the woodwork, setting up discovery calls. I have been um, teaching webinars. Companies are hiring me to teach webinars left and right about, you know, what moves should you be making in the light of what's going on, um, you know, and how do you develop that emotional resiliency around mm. your finances. So um, I think in times like these, people realize this isn't something that I can put off forever. Um, because there's a lot of people who make really great money, but they're still living almost paycheck to paycheck. Yeah. Or they're not doing as well as they feel like they should be, right? Yeah. Um, you know, and because of the work that I do is very personalized, it's very emotional and it's, you know, time intensive. When I'm working one-on-one -on -one with people, my coaching isn't cheap and most of my clients make six figures plus. Yeah. And what I tell people is it doesn't matter how much money you make because most people think if I had more money, then I wouldn't have these problems. Right. Now, certainly, if someone is on the edge of poverty, that may be true. But anybody who is solidly in the middle class, more money is only going to amplify what you already have. Okay. You know, if you're, yeah. if you're in the habit of, you know, as soon as I get a raise, I go buy a new car and get a higher car payment, you're just going to be driving a nicer car. Yeah. But you're going to have more debt. So, Christine... For you, what was the greatest lesson? Because you know our show is all about failing forward. And that's why I love your story. Um, what was your greatest lesson or, or what um, prompted you to start doing this work? How did you know? Well, you know, I, I started out doing this actually as a volunteer. Really? Um, yes. So I remember about a year after I broke off that relationship, 
I distinctly remember driving to work one day and the thought struck me that I couldn't remember the last time I worried about money. And that was a complete shock to me because the previous seven years, I was under this cloud of constant money anxiety. And I, I wasn't even out of debt yet at that point, but I had my plan, I was working my plan, I was seeing tangible progress, and I actually had hope for the first time mm. um, for the future of my finances. And so I was like, there's probably a lot of people out there who are in the same position that I was in a year ago, and they don't even realize that there's a different way to do this because I mean, I didn't even know how much stress I was under until I was on the other side of it and didn't have it anymore. So it was shortly after that, um, that someone at my church recruited me to help teach a financial literacy course that they were offering at the church. And so that was the start of my journey was I was sitting, you know, at these tables with these small groups of people, walking them through the exercises, you know, encouraging them, um, you know, and it kind of snowballed from there. So I actually taught that course for 10 years. Wow. Um, and it, yeah. And in the middle of that, I found out that I could get certified to be a financial counselor. And I thought, you know, I'm, I'm already doing that. I'm already counseling people. I should probably make sure I'm doing it right. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and so even when I got the training, they had two tracks. They had like a for-profit track and a non-profit track. And I actually took the non-profit track because, you know, by that time I was working at my family's business. I was part owner. I was the vice president of HR and accounting. And I, you know, the plan was my brother and I were going to take over that business when my dad retired. And so to me, it was, it was not an a conscious career choice at, at the beginning, but the more that I did the coaching, the more that I fell in love with the transformation I was able to deliver to people. So a lot of our listeners um, are, are potentially in career transition or they just want to figure out their passion or their gift back to the world. So how did you figure that out? Was it listening? Was it meditating or praying? Like, how did you know? You know, I think it was just when, when people would leave the coaching session and I could see that transformation of, you know, trading that anxiety and that shame for confidence and financial dignity. It was like when those people left the coaching session, I just wanted to like bust out cheering, you yeah. know, it was just like, I felt like so high on life and it was just like, you know, if I could do anything and get paid for it, like it would be this. Yeah. And you know, when the last recession hit, it, it hit my, uh, my company, my family's business pretty hard. And so I remember meeting with my business coach and he was like, Oh, how's everything going? And I was like, Oh, not so good. <laughs> and, uh, you know, he could tell that I was obviously like really upset and worried by it. Yeah. And he said, he said, well, let me ask you something. He said, 
if I could pay you the exact same salary that you're making right now, but you could do anything else, what would it be? And I did not miss a beat. I said, financial coaching. Wow. And he said, why don't you start that part-time and just, just see where that goes. I mean, maybe everything's going to be fine with the family business. Um, and yes, they have recovered. They're still in business and doing very well, Good. but you know, it was especially scary because I met my husband at work. And so both of us had our, all of our income eggs in one basket. Oh. Uh, and so, you know, I was like, mm, maybe we need to start thinking about some, some contingency plans and yeah. diversifying our income. And, you know, once I started coaching for profit and realized people will actually pay me for this and they, they actually can afford to pay me for this. Mm -hmm. um, sometimes they think they can't, but once we get in there and we realize they're spending $600 on eating out or whatever the case may be, um, they're like, oh yes, we can afford to pay you. <laughs> so I believe that each human has a gift to give back to the world. And I love your story because you figured that out. And I think so many people are trying to figure that out. I, I feel like I'm still trying to figure it out. I mean, I, I definitely get that joy um, from podcasts and coaching others, uh, but it evolves, right? As we get older, we change. Mm -hmm. And so how do you keep reinventing yourself and continuing to give whatever that gift is back to the world? Yeah, so, you know, I really feel like my mission in life is to shine my light into the darkness. And for my business, that means shining my light into the financial darkness of others and giving them hope. And one of the things that I realized recently is that I cannot spread the financial dignity movement alone, mm. that I can't do this by myself. And, you know, unfortunately, there's, you know, th this whole thing of behavioral finance is still very young, and it's not, um, it's considered soft skills a lot of the time in the right. financial fields, but I am very encouraged that I'm seeing um, this wave of financial advisors who want this kind of training. So I don't just coach people and teach people through my books and my courses, I'm now also teaching other financial coaches and financial planners Love about that. the emotional side of money. So that... Uh, to me, there's no... Re I mean, it's, it's silly not to. I mean, I can't yeah. believe that they don't have that. Yeah. I mean, there are starting to be, you know, more resources sure. out there. Um, and certainly there's there is now a field called financial therapy. So I'm, I'm a member of the financial therapy association. Really? Um, yeah, but that's actually psychology. And so I find that there's a lot of financial planners who say, I don't want to learn about psychological theory. I want you to tell me what is going on in my client's head and what do I need to do to help them with this? Like, you know, if they're an emotional spender, I need to know, I, I need to know the techniques, like tell me exactly what tools I can use with these folks so that they can break out of this destructive pattern. Right. Oh, that's amazing work. 
Yeah. All right. So I'm really enjoying that. Yeah, that's great. Final question for you. If your book, because I want people to go buy this book because it's so amazing. Also, <laughs> listeners, at the end uh, of every chapter are action items that are superb. Uh, is there a story or a piece of the book that you think would be really impactful for our listeners, or maybe something that's really been popping up recently since, since this whole pandemic? Oh, gosh, I just feel like, I feel like there's a lot, a lot of, there's a lot of great stories in that book. Yeah. Um, and I tell people, you know, my life is an open book, and I think you can agree that that's the least boring money book that you could ever read. I would agree. One hundred percent. It's half tabloid of my life and half <laughs> how to, right? Um, but I think what's interesting about it is that the how tos that I give people are based off of harnessing the power of your emotions. So one of the things that I talk about, and I I don't even think that that made it into the book. Maybe it did. Um, but I've been talking a lot to people about paying off your debt in a way that's most emotionally satisfying to you. So what does that mean? Yeah. So, you know, usually people just talk about like two different ways to pay things off. Like, you know, you pay off the highest interest rate first, right? Right. right that's right. the most mathematically correct way to do it. Um, but what if your largest debt is also your highest interest rate and it can feel like you're trying to climb Mount Everest, mm -hmm. right? So the flip side of that is the debt snowball. And so a lot of people have heard of that one. And that's where you pay off the smallest one first so that you have a sense of accomplishment, ah. right? right? And so once you've paid that one off, you take the money that you used to pay on that one and you roll it down to the next one until you get the second smallest one paid off. And then you keep rolling that down to the next one. So that's like the whole, the whole snowball analogy. And so for a lot of people who, especially like type A personalities like me, I don't know. I am the type of person where I will write something on my to-do list just so I can check it off. Totally. That's me. That's me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I love checking things off my list. Right. So for people who that is a great motivator, that debt snowball is actually probably one of the best ways for them to pay off their debt because they can see those things being checked off the list. They can see that list of debts shrinking and that's very motivating for them. Yeah. However, if you're in a situation like I was in, especially if you're coming out of a bad relationship, um, maybe you're coming out of divorce and you have a debt that reminds you of your ex. You know, for me, that was my Dillard's bill. I hated, hated that one. So um, I don't know if I've coined this or if someone else has coined it, but I call it the volcano method of debt reduction. <laughs> and that is pay off the debt that pisses you off the most first, <laughs> right? Because you just want yes. it gone, right? So just be like, I all right, debt, that. you are going down. Like, I hate you. Oh. I'm putting every spare dollar. <laughs> I totally get that. Yep. Yes. And I use that a lot with my divorce clients. So. Oh yeah. That would be a goodie. I like yes. how you also said like pay your bills in a pleasant environment. Um, yes. 
You know, so one thing that I've started to do is I have to say, I was probably not always honest about spending in the past. And I've been doing some work around that. And like, let's say I bought a sweater. I would tell Dave, I would do it on a different credit card than my husband's, right? Because I didn't want him to know about it, blah, 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 blah. And I realized that like, that's not really being honest, you know, like at all. Okay. (laughs) And so I stopped that, but then I started, I put all of our stuff in QuickBooks and then I do, I review our budget and set up time with him. Now he's been kind. He's like being cool with us going over it, but I know he's like, what has happened to my wife? Because she's done a 180 on this, but I just wasn't financially responsible. And now when I go through QuickBooks, I really like going through it. And then I get energy from looking at our P&L for that month. Yes. It, yeah. It's totally gooby, but I, I do. I like it. And then I play this game to see if I, we can spend less this month than we did the last month. I'd like to report to you that last night I did our August expenses and we did spend uh-huh. less than yeah. July. Yeah. All right. Well, any final pieces of advice for our listeners? Um, I think I would just say get started. Um, whichever area of your personal finances where you feel like you need to grow and you need to come up higher, you know, just start, you know, whether it's taking a course, whether it's buying a book, um, you know, we're never done Mm -hmm. with personal development and not with financial matters either. I mean, I tell people, I probably read at least 10 to 12 financial related books every year. Really? Because you know, I need to be the subject matter expert, but I also know that I don't know everything. Oh, I love that. Well, that is a perfect, humble, yet very credible ending to the show. (laughs) So thank you for spending the time with us. Listeners, we will have Christine's uh, website link in our notes. And again, I really recommend Money is Emotional. It's a great book. It's a really easy read. And you're right. You're right, Christine. It is the most interesting money book that I've read. And I've read a couple. Good. I'm glad you like it. So thanks for being on the show today. Thanks for having me. I want to thank everyone behind the scenes, especially Adrian Donica and the team at Gwyn Sound. Also, please find us on social media outlets at Fail Forward Pod. 